Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Bozicats, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Hello, Justin. Seth, why do you sound like a hobbit? Well, I just saw Harry Potter, the last installment, and I thought I'd be the house elf Dobby for a while. (laughs) That's such a coincidence because I also saw the last Harry Potter movie. It was crazy. I went to the theater sat down and the projector broke and to the booze and chaos in downtown Vancouver I thought a riot might even break out who who would imagine that possibility they gave us all free passes then the movie started after half the theater left so you know I got I got a free pass and I got to see the end of the Harry Potter octilogy it it was a pretty large and amazing series while it lasted but I'm kind of happy it's over so the world can obsess about something new. Like Rupert Murdoch. Well, I was thinking about Jersey Shore, but oh. Rupert Murdoch is good too. I think when the Jersey Shore reaches its eighth movie, it will absolutely be the phenomenon we've all been waiting for. It'll be just like Harry Potter in 3D IMAX, which is, you know, even better. Because who doesn't want to see Snooky in 3D IMAX? <laughs> but actually, one of the interesting things about the Harry Potter movies was how progressively deeper and more layered they became as the movies went on and really they just reflected the trend that was in the book and even in the final movie after harry uh was in his uh purgatory or in between state or whatever it was one of my favorite parts was when harry asked dumbledore is this all in my head is this even real and dumbledore says this is all in your head, but what makes you think it isn't real? And I was like, whoa, I was blown away. I, I was, that was an Inception moment there, wasn't it? A little bit of like dream within a dream. <laughs> well, it wasn't an Inception moment. Maybe it was like a Terrence McKenna moment, but I thought that for a moment, Terrence McKenna had uh, meshed with Dumbledore. There's a lot of similar- similarities there. Um, so Justin, who are we talking with this week? So today we're going to play a conversation with John Michael Greer, who is not a house elf, he's not Dumbledore, but he's pretty much as close as you can get in our world of the Muggles. He's the Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and being a Druid is a precursor to his understanding of the natural world and the relationship that humans have to the natural world, and because of that interesting perspective, He is a very well-accomplished author on what it means to transition into this next age of energy depletion. 
and he's written quite a few books such as The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the Industrial Age, and The Ecotechnic Future, Exploring a Post-Peak World, and then he has a new book out, The Wealth of Nature, Economics as if Survival Mattered, and we're going to talk to him today about what it's like to be a druid in the modern world, what it's like to transition into this new age of energy depletion and about so much regarding economics as we've been talking with a lot of our guests recently we've been covering economics with a lot of different people we we? have and they all seem to have some very common themes don't you think that they all seem to talk about energy as a commodity and how energy has shaped the world that we know and how energy is running out they all seem to have that same kind of theme in them yeah, well, I also noticed how every single day it seems like the the West Texas intermediate price of crude oil goes up and up and up, even though it appears as if demand goes down and down and down in all of the countries where the economy is unraveling. And the truth is, I was quite chilled the other day when I started watching film by Adam Curtis, all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace. And in the second part of that series, they talked quite a bit about the limits to growth which has been referenced probably a ton of times. I'm sure you've, you've heard about it if you're listening to this podcast. But it was a report that was issued from a lot of uh, computer models based on what would happen if we continued growing the economy as we did uh, late 1960s and early 1970s. And one of the guys in the film is sitting there testifying to the UN about the limits to growth. And he says that if we continue on in the way that we're going, all of these computer models predict that in the first few decades of the 21st century, all of human civilization will collapse. And it seems like everything that they said is coming true. And there's a lot of people who've gone on to quote unquote debunk the limits to growth model for a lot of different reasons and a lot of very seemingly valid reasons. But the fundamental fact remains that we're in a position, if you watch the headlines every day and you see stuff about the U.S. defaulting, European economies collapsing, it seems to pretty much validate everything that those people were saying back when they put the limits to growth models together. And we're not talking to stupid people on this show. We're talking to people who are very highly accomplished, who have multiple degrees, who have written many books. These people all seem to say the same kind of thing. So it kind of makes me believe that there might be some validity to what they're saying which is an interesting thing because the mainstream media kind of avoids these topics very much as much as they can and you know it takes alternate media people like ourselves to actually bring the message to the forefront you were talking about how well accomplished all these people are what are what are your accomplishments justin what are mine (laughs) My accomplishment is potentially responding to emails that are not three months old. I ran 11 miles and did yoga on Saturday. Wow, that's those are those are some pretty good accomplishments. I think we're pretty accomplished. We should probably do a podcast. Yeah, yeah, we should we should totally talk to interesting people about our accomplishments. I'm glad that they talk to us more yeah. like. All right, well, I guess that's a good point to start our interview with John Michael Greer. So hopefully you enjoy and we'll see you on the other side. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with John Michael Greer, Arch Druid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. 
John, you are a rad and respected blogger at the Archdrude Report, where your weekly posts continually overturn conventional logic with lucid wisdom. You serve as the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and you are a prolific author of more than 20 books on a very wide range of subjects, including The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the Industrial Age, The Ecotechnic Future, Exploring a Post-Peak World, and your most recent book, which we're here to talk about today, The Wealth of Nature, Economics as if Survival Mattered. Your background is extremely extensive, so is there anything else you'd like to highlight? Um, no, I think that basically covers the, the, the relevant points just, just at the moment. Before we begin talking, I thought it might interest you that I had a class here at University of British Columbia last spring, and we actually used your book, The Long Descent, in the class. Good. Um, and so I, I thought that was really interesting because uh, it really overturned a lot of people's preconceived notions, especially in academia. How, how, how did they take that? It was in a class on planning, planning for the future, mm-hmm. by Professor Bill Rees at University of British Columbia. A lot of people came into the class with a very techno-utopian notion of the future, thinking that uh, climate yeah. change can be solved with carbon capture sequestration and shiny new solar panels and things, and they came out mm-hmm. of it thinking, ah, our future might be quite a bit different than we thought. Okay, well, at least, at least they dealt with the, with the possibility. I've noticed that a lot of times people who, who are introduced to the kind of ideas that I'm trying to, and, um, and of course a, a number of other people are trying to talk about, the immediate response is denial. Actually, there's been some discussion in the peak oil community about um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of coming to terms with death. There's also five stages of coming to terms with peak oil, and denial is the first of them. So the first thing you typically get is people going, no, not a chance, you know. We're, we're, we're destined to have some kind of Star Trek future among the stars. What are you saying? We're, we're like, facing resource limits and blah, blah, so on and so forth. Maybe just getting started as well, maybe you can explain to some of our listeners who've never really heard of you or read any of your books, which I know there are probably very few of those people, but mm-hmm. what it means to be an archdruid of the ancient order of druids in America. There's a certain amount of, of complexity that comes in here because... I happen to belong to a minority religion. I have, at the moment, a leadership role within one particular um, order within that minority religion. That doesn't actually have a huge amount to do directly with my writings on peak oil and the future of industrial society. I mean, there's some feed-through in there. The fact that I, be- that I practice a religion that's focused on reverence for nature, for the living earth, and so on, probably has something to do with the fact that I have a certain skepticism toward the idea that we can simply ignore nature and live in this, this techno-utopia powered on, well, whatever. It's not the same thing. It's not that I'm presenting religious propaganda in books on the future of the industrial world. I sometimes need to make this point because there, there are a lot of people out there who are Christians or Jews or atheists or one of the other popular religions of our time, and nobody asks them, well, you know, is, is your Christianity the reason why you're saying X about the future, or is your Judaism, or, or what have you? But if you belong to a minority religion, you do get that question. No, that, that's a really interesting and very valid point. Do you think that your study of the world's magical traditions has anything to do with peak oil in the post-industrial future? Has it influenced your views in any way? Well, it has in one particular way. Occultism and magic are, are very poorly understood by most people in the modern world. Dion Fortune, who was one of the major 20th century theoreticians of magic, defines it as the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Now, that does not sound like something out of a Harry Potter book, and indeed it isn't. You know, Harry Potter is, is well, you know, children's stories. Magic is, is not. It's a, it is, again, the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. One of the implications of this is that being trained in traditional 
methods of, of medical training and, and, and the whole occult philosophy and so on. It's left me with a great deal of sensitivity toward the role of attitudes, the role of consciousness, the role of the narratives that we use to define our world in shaping what we think of as external realities. Very often when people say, well, this is the way the world is, what they're actually saying is, this is the way the inside of my own head is structured. And there's a huge amount of that in the basically dominating the whole peak oil scene. You have a lot of people out there who are stuck on the idea that progress is a law of nature, that you know, we can't, quote, go back, unquote, that anything other than more machines, more energy consumption, more fancy technology, um, more population, more gross national product, is, it would be wicked if it weren't impossible. Because they've got this idea of progress glued into the inside of their heads, and that's the way the world looks for them. If you step back and realize that this is a narrative, it's a story, it's a construct of consciousness that people have learned to use as a filter through which they see the universe, then the world suddenly looks very different because you realize that progress isn't a law of nature, that it's been a feature of recent history, and that it need not necessarily continue into the future. So there's, to that extent, to the extent that um, an attention to the role of the consciousness, that narratives, that, that symbols and dramatic imagery and so on play in shaping what people think is the world outside of their game. Yes, I think a certain amount of magical training has kind of spilled over into the rest of my work. So you mentioned that people all start their own narratives throughout childhood and it's formed as they grow up. How do people change their consciousness if, if that is something that they want to do or that externalities force them to do how do they go about changing that consciousness in expectations of a post-peak oil future i mean it's a complicated question because our our consciousness our assumptions our presuppositions are actually changing all the time everything that enters that enters our minds everything that we think everything that we get off the media that we see out in the uh, in, in the world around us that we perceive through our senses all of this is, is forming this very complex process of feedback that gradually shapes how we perceive the world. I've noticed that a lot of people who are trying to grapple with, with the future after peak oil in particular, they're trying to, to come to grips with that, but very often they don't want to give up the core narratives because there's a lot of emotional energy invested in those. And understandably, if you believe in progress, if you believe that not only is humanity destined to some splendid future out among the stars, but that our particular civilization is the most important one that ever is because we're the ones who are coming up to that leap into space. All of the past leads to us and through us toward this glorious future. It's very intoxicating. It feeds the ego like nobody's business. And it also promises that whatever you do, whatever you know, you're doing in your life, however frustrating, however boring, however um, apparently inconsequential it is, it's in some way helping that great march forward to, to the Star Trek future. If you take that away from somebody, it's like suddenly making a medieval peasant understand that heaven with God and the saints and the angels and all that right above his head isn't there anymore. And it's crushing. A lot of people will convince themselves of anything to avoid coming, you know, coming to terms with that horrible realization that the glorious future of progress isn't there, that we don't have some kind of destiny as a species to go flinging ourselves out into space or whatever, you know, whatever vision of progress is, that history doesn't have a direction, that it doesn't have a goal, that isn't going someplace. You know, it's amazing what people will convince themselves of to try to avoid that. 
masses of news coming up after this break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, Brian, if you could do just one thing today to ensure your family's food security, what would it be? That's easy, Bill. I'd head straight to SoupBeansurvival.com. SoupBeansurvival.com? I know, Bill, it sounds crazy, but this ancient secret has been around for over 8,000 years. Brian, these aren't grocery store beans, are they? No way, Bill. You're not going to find these beans in any grocery store. These are the absolute highest quality beans in the world. listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with John Michael Greer, author of The Wealth of Nature. And you wrote in your book questioning how many people who maybe are approaching retirement but are hardcore believers in, say, that 2012 is the end of humanity mm-hmm. on this planet, how many of them have actually cashed in their retirement? How many people have actually <laughs> taken and, and yeah. put in their actual actions to, to match up with mm-hmm. their beliefs and expectations Wait, about it, either peak oil or anything? Well, the 2012 thing, I actually have a book coming out this fall um, called Apocalypse Not. And it's on the, it's on the entire, the, the, the whole hoorah around the world's going to end, you know, at 10 o'clock tonight, film at 11. Um, the whole, the, what I've called the apocalypse meme, the idea that the world is going to end really soon so that we don't have to deal with the consequences of our own actions. And that's basically what it amounts to. You know, whether it's people waiting for 2012 or people convinced that the rapture is going to, you know, beam them up uh, to the Starship Antichrist or something like that. Um, all of these ideas that history is going to stop, whatever we've done doesn't actually matter because the world's going to end and either God's going to give us a pretty new world or the space brothers are going to come and change everything or just everyone's going to die so it doesn't matter. A lot of people are very, very fixated on that sort of thinking. I don't think they actually believe it insofar as, you know, very few of them have actually cashed out their retirements and or things like that. But it becomes a very comforting thing, a sort of security blanket they can cling to, to avoid having to grapple with the fact that their retirement funds aren't going to be worth anything by the time they need to use them. So is that what drives the doomer mindset that one, that kind of gives people that almost zombie apocalypse viewpoint of what a post-peak future might look like? Well, that's, that's a lot of it. That's a lot of it. Partly it's, you know, it is really, if, if, you, if you're looking at a future and you've, you've come to the conclusion that it's not going to be business as usual forever, we're never going to have the, the Jetsons, you know, future that, that some of us grew up expecting, then it's so much more colorful and more interesting to think of a zombie apocalypse or, you know, the earth being splatted by a meteor or, or anything, anything other than history. The terrifying thing to most people about, um, about peak oil, about the decline of the industrial world is precisely that it means the history as, as it's always been is still going. That civilizations are rising and falling that, you know, things go up and they go down, that things keep on cycling, that we have to take the consequences of our actions, and that means that we're all going to be a lot poorer than we want to be. And we're not going to have all these pretty toys. And, you know, it's, it's a bummer. <laughs> it's a real bummer. And so people convince themselves that, you know, they'll all be eaten by zombies instead, because it may be painful, but it's quick. And, it, and, and you don't have to worry about spending the next 40 years without video games. No, we're all about video games. <laughs> there we oh, go. Man. You see? <laughs> oh, <laughs> how... <laughs> I, so, I've never uh, played a video game. But then... <laughs> you've never played a video game ever? I've never played a video game. You, you can remember. I mean, I'm, I'm, old, I'm, I'm pushing 50 at this point. 
I, I got into computers late and unwillingly. I'm not a great fan of them. Are you a big board game player? No, not especially. I'm not. I'm not much of a game type, really. A lot of things to do in my free time. <laughs> I, I play several musical instruments. I have friends. I have an extensive correspondent that I like. I like to read. I have more hobbies than you can shake a stick at. And I write a lot of books. Writing definitely probably takes up a lot of your time. You know, I, I work longer hours than most people who have a regular job. But um, then I also have a 15-second commute. <laughs> <laughs> Take us through a, a normal day in, in the life of uh, John Michael Greer. Normal day in the life of John Michael Greer, insofar as such a critter exists. A normal day, um, my wife and I get up uh, 7.30ish, and I have some spiritual practices that I do every morning. There's meditation and some ritual work and some physical exercises as well. And then there's breakfast to be cooked, which is usually my job. We, we have the housework divided up pretty evenly. And, and then after breakfast, I will usually check my email, find out what kind of craziness has come in the inbox this time. And then it's fire up the work computer and start typing. And I will take breaks from that. I have, we, have, we have a vegetable garden out back, which provides most of our veggies at this point. And so I'll take breaks for garden work and breaks to just stretch and drink plenty of tea. And then toward late afternoon, whoever's going to be uh, doing dinner, which may be me, um, is going to be doing dinner. And dinner gets done. And after that, I, I try to unwind. And after that, it's time for reading and playing music and you know, sitting around and talking. And if your friends come over to visit or what, what have you. You know, various social type stuff until finally um, it's time to sign her off to bed. Basically, like any anyone else in a lot of ways, but like uh, anyone else, yeah. yeah. The really exotic things are that my commute can be made in a bathrobe, and typically is. There isn't a TV anywhere in the house. I haven't owned a television my adult life, and I wouldn't take one as a gift. And that you know the the hour of spiritual practices every morning, which is not something most people do these days. Although I think people would be better off if they did. And it really doesn't matter which you know spiritual tradition. I don't I don't care, but. You know, it'd be something that that's something to cultivate, not something to say, well, yes, I belong to this, and that membership card will do all that's necessary. I find that your blog posts, I mean, you come out with them on, on such a regular basis on the Archdrude Report, and they have mm -hmm. such interesting insights. And do you find that your spiritual practice informs those and, and constantly kind of feeds back into your writing and your insights that you have? It would be very hard to trace a direct connection. No doubt something feeds in. The Archdrude Report, that's, that's my Wednesday. Basically, every Wednesday when I start work, that's what I start. I write the essay Wednesday. You know, some, Wednesday, sometimes work runs late, and it may not be maybe 8 or 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock before I actually finish the thing. But I, I'm, I mean, I'm sure the spiritual practices feed into it somehow, but it's not as though I spend the week meditating on you know, um, organic gardening to try to figure out what I'm going to be putting <laughs> into the thing. I got involved in all this stuff back in the 1970s. You remember the last time we had an energy crisis? I learned organic gardening back then. I was involved in some alternative energy stuff. I got my, in the early early 80s, I got my master conserver certificate, various things like this. And unlike most people in America, when, when they, you know, Reagan showed up and it was morning in America or whatever hoopla that was, and everyone decided, okay, well, it's not an issue anymore. Let's get out there, hop onto our SUVs and consume. I didn't. And so most of the stuff that I've been talking about has been the stuff that I was, has been studying and thinking about and working with all those years where most other Americans were listening to, to Gordon, the gospel according to Gordon Gecko. You know, greed is good and, and screw the environment. We, we can buy a new one. 
So that's really, I think, where where a lot of this is coming from. Just I didn't I didn't drink the Kool Aid. In the, Projecting in the some of that pop cultureness yeah. that everyone bought into. Yeah, so we're, that kind of, we're, yeah, where everyone decided that, that energy conservation and, and and ecology and things like that from the 70s, oh, well, that was a fad. Now we'll go on to the important things like raping the planet and, and you know, um, so we could drive our SUVs. And you published your uh, Long Descent Now and When the Wealth of Nature uh, was released in 2008. How, how have your views changed from 2008 till now? Really, I'm still working on, on the same basic idea, basic set of ideas, if anything. The basic outline that I sketched in The Long Descent has been borne out in, in quite a bit of detail by events since I wrote that book. I mean, I finished it in 2007. Okay, At that point, the housing market hadn't, the housing bubble hadn't imploded. And I was saying in the book, look, this is not going to last. We're going to have this, we're going to have this, we're going to have that. So I had a certain amount of flack in, um, in the Archtrude Report back in 2006, 2007, where people were saying, no, 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 the, you don't understand. The, the housing market's rising because of you know, fill in the usual excuses. And, and you know, we're not going to see an economic turn down. Oh, well, guess what? And so you, you'll find really, if you look at um, Wealth of Nature, you look at the ecotechnic future, um, the long descent, all of them are coming out of um, a fairly consistent idea of where we're going. It's a set of ideas, that, you know, as I said, I've been developing for some decades now. And if it turns out that I'm wrong, well, we'll see. But so far, I haven't been. That's, that's not quite exactly true. I've, I've been wrong in some details. I thought that the price of oil would crash, would crash, would take longer to crash. I mean, we had the spike in 2008, the slam down in 2009, now back up in 2010 and 2011. Now it looks like it's dropping again. It, that's faster than I was expecting. But I did predict that it would be up and down. But would you say that if someone read through The Long Descent back in 2008, or even recently, and was somewhat unconvinced that one of the biggest proofs would have been the housing market crash and then just how it, it kind of wasn't catastrophic in the sense that it took all of civilization down, but it was like a bump in the road. Yeah. Well, I think if people look at what's actually happening, if they look at the housing crash, if they look at the financial chaos unfolding in Europe right now, if they look at what's happened to the price of oil, the price of other energy things, the desperate panic to pump shale gas even though they're wrecking much of the you know, large sections of the nation's water supply to do it. All of the convulsions and all of the desperate attempts to prop up business as usual, the fact that the, the, the Federal Reserve has been paying the America's national debt by printing money. <clears throat> I mean, when that happened, I just went, Duh! because I didn't think they'd do it that blatantly. I didn't think they would, they would, they would come right out and admit, look, nobody else is going to buy this paper, so I guess we've got, we're going to print the money to do it. It basically has all fit the broad scenario of decline that I've been proposing. Right, and it makes you wonder how much longer it, it can go on so blatantly, such as the IEA in the U.S. releasing all of this oil from the strategic reserves. I mean, it's, it's basically oh, like printing money, but in oil. Yeah. The, you know, with the end of the, of the current round of money printing, because it's become pretty obvious that if they keep that up, they're going to push the U.S. over into hyperinflation. So we're going to stop the printing presses this month and release a whole bunch of oil for the next three months to try to dip the price of oil, um, stabilize the U.S. balance of trade a little bit, and see if we can cushion the, the descent a little bit. Of course, partly also, it takes on an average of about 18 months for um, a bump in prosperity that's been generated by dropping oil prices to work its way through the system. And 18 months from now, of course, we'll know who's won the 2010 presidential election. So I don't think that's um, entirely out of the picture either. 
with the Obama administration coming into power in, in 2008 as well, um, mm-hmm. have you seen much of a difference between this administration and the last administration? Does, does politics yeah, have it, a role in the world? Well, politics potentially has a role, but the thing is the United States actually has a one-party system. We claim to have a two-party system, but to, to tell the actual difference, other than on a few hot-button issues where both parties yell their fool heads off, but neither one actually does anything. You, to tell the differences between the two parties, you, have to, you need a micrometer. In fact, it, on a national level, Obama has followed W's policies letter for letter. He got elected saying he was going to change them. As soon as he was in office, he shrugged and said, no, no, we're going to keep Gitmo. We're going to keep troops in Iraq. We're going to keep troops in Afghanistan. You know, we're, da, 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 da. They saw him with simple-minded voters who said, hey, what about, what about hope and change? You know, they don't get the fact that that's, that's a sales slogan. Just <laughs> as W came in saying, we're going to change all the stuff that Bill Clinton was doing, and then he took over all of Bill Clinton's policies. And when the next Republican president comes in, when that happens, he's going to take over all of Obama's policies and keep pushing them forward. And then the Republicans are going to be left going, well, what about a new, new dawn in America? Whatever the slogan is in those days. But in fact, these same policies have been in place since Reagan, with the sole exception of George Bush Sr., who tried to do something a little closer to an old-fashioned conservative thing, who, you know, we had the economic troubles as a result of that. Because if you don't keep gunning bubbles, the economy turns south. So Bill Clinton slaughtered him in the election, and now everybody's stuck in a sort of permanent loop of Reaganomics. So you wrote in the book about Hagbard's Law. So I was wondering if you think that all of the economic prognostications that we see on a regular basis, you know, all of this, the headlines about the recoveries working, you know, we're still on the mm-hmm. path to recovery. Do you think that it's more of like the people at the top are just completely ignorant in the sense that they're fed all of these fake numbers or that they really are just specifically misleading the public or some kind of like grand conspiracies going on in that sense? It's a very complex situation because on the one hand, they're lying. Of course they're lying. If you want to know when a politician is lying, wait till he opens his mouth. At the same time, they are amazingly disconnected from what's actually going on. This has been increasingly the case for, for years now. The political elite, the economic elite, the people who, the political class, if you will, the people who are, who, who make decisions that shape the political and economic and, and social um, activities in the United States, they live in a bubble. What they get is mediated, constantly mediated. They have layers of flax and filters and all this kind of stuff. And it becomes very self-referential because if you know what you're trying to make the world look like and all of your flax and flunkies know that their job depends on feeding you back what you want to hear, you're going to end up in a, sort, in a state of schizoid separation from reality like nobody's business. And I think that's a lot of what's going on there. Yes, there's deliberate dishonesty, but there's also just this bizarre separation from the real world. I think if you were to take any of these people, whether it's Obama, whether it's John, John Boehner, whether any of the upper-level politicians, any of the upper-level executives, and stick them in a small town in the Midwest for a month with no way out, I think they'd, they'd wonder if they'd been taken to bars. They'd be totally baffled. The world that they would inhabit during that month would be totally unlike anything they believed existed in the United States. Do you think that your writings on economics would be able to convince anyone in a position of power or who would be in, say, like the academic level of of economics? Is my book going to convince anybody in power? Of course not. Not now. Again, I doubt most of them will ever hear that the book exists. I mean, most business executives read nothing but cheap mysteries. 
they have no contact with this kind of thought. And, you know, I'm sure a few economists, professors will read it here and there. I'll probably throw it across the room because I, I say some fairly unkind things about the profession of economics as it's currently practiced. The thing is, one of the problems that happens, well, one, I should say rather solutions to the, to the problem of this kind of schizoid isolation from reality that I've talked about is that when the people who are running the country become too detached from reality, they start running into brick walls they don't notice. The country goes through a convulsion. The last of those was in 1932, with the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And you have the same thing. Herbert Hoover, who was president in those days, had lived in this little bubble of information where he was convinced recovery was right around the corner, the economy was getting better, everything was okay, while the United States was literally falling apart economically. And it finally reached the point that there, there were literally the beginnings of rural insurgencies in the Midwest. Farmers were blockading roads and, and start, you know, with rifles in hands and things like that. And the people who were not quite so centrally, so centrally placed in the bubble of isolation, people who were not so completely cut off, threw their support to this, this, this wacko FDR. And he became president, and there was a whole bunch of, you know, there was a period of, of about a decade, convulsive change, when a bunch of things that had been totally unacceptable and totally unthinkable in America up to that time got brought into place. My working guess is that we're moving towards such a change. How long it will be until we get there is an interesting question. It could be a couple of decades. But when it hits, having ideas out there that can be useful raw material for the people who will be scrambling to find something that works as, you know, to keep the country or whatever the country is turned into by that time from falling apart. Um, that's my basic strategy. This is not going to prevent a crisis. It may help people rebuild after one. You mentioned before that if we had our political leaders go hang out in a small town and live at, like every other American, they would have a totally different view of, of their lives. They would have a very different view of, of the America in general. Um, yeah. How is it that they appeal to such a large amount of people then with their rhetoric during their elections? How do they appeal to small-town Americans who are living in those towns, like you mentioned, first on a thing, national scale? Okay, the first thing I point out is that they do nothing of the kind. It's all in the outer circles of their flacks who are generating the slogans and you know, sort of fumbling around for something that will appeal to the public. At any given time, you know, of a presidential campaign, you can look at the, the current um, Republican objects um, who are running for, for the presidency. You know, they've got their, their various circles of flax who are out there trying different slogans, trying different buzzwords. And since most Americans at this point are used to the thought that they have to pick the least bad candidate. I mean, if you actually look at how much respect most Americans have for the politicians, it's not much. And in fact, a very large number of Americans, we don't vote at all. Among those who do, it's generally not, they're not enthusiastically voting for someone. They're saying, okay, who stinks the least? And it's not too hard to get your candidate slightly, you know, uh, put, put just enough lipstick on your candidate pig um, to get him past the voters. But there's not a lot of enthusiasm there. Because you were my protection From the rain outside Made me feel love like the old days, yeah 
You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with John Michael Greer, Arch Druid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. So are we going to see an outburst of anger or the voters this round were definitely lied to in a lot of different ways. And we and we had the same policies and as as George W. And do you think that there's going to be an outburst of anger, like people saying, we don't want this. We want somebody who, who listens to us. Does, is that is that ever going to happen? It's a really good question that does happen now and again in American history. It's a really good question exactly how the frustration and the anger and the disappointment and the and the outrage will end up expressing itself, it will, especially as the pseudo-recovery continues to deflate, as the economy continues to, quote, improve, unquote, by getting worse, and so on and so forth. That's, that shortens the fuse. Exactly how that's going to happen is anyone guess. My, my working guess is the 2012 election is going to be very undervoted in. I think you're going to see a fairly small number of Americans actually casting their ballot. They're going to be, face, be facing uh, you know, a, candid, uh, a campaign between a couple of cardboard cutouts who will denounce each other in the most blistering terms while pursuing the, well, well, everyone knows they're going to pursue the identical policies. How long it will take before things actually get overturned is a very interesting question. So it sounds like the ancient order of Druids does not endorse a particular party? The ancient order of Druids in America, by its, by its basic constitution and by laws and by its status as a, as a nonprofit, we don't endorse parties, we don't endorse individuals, we do not allow political discussion at our meetings or on our email lists. We have this thing in America called the separation of church and state. And yes, I know there are some um, some rather foolish people in several parts of the religious world in this country who think we should get rid of that. They're crazy because the separation of church and state is there to protect the churches. Once the churches start telling the government what to do, very quickly the government tells the churches what to do. And then you start, you know, you start having your sermons being reviewed by a government appointee to make sure they're politically appropriate. We have this thing called separation of church and state. And that means, among other things, that religious organizations of all kinds, when political campaigns come up, need to keep their mouths shut. I can't make all the religious organizations in the country do that, but I can certainly see to it that the AODA leaves its members to make up their own minds about political issues. Kind of changing vein a little bit, one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was how you wrote about superstition, such as the way that bowls of milk were set out by your Welsh grandmother for the spirits, but and, yeah. and had the side effect of attracting cats to eat mice. And actually, I think it was one of your blog posts I read where you mentioned how divining randomized the actions of hunter-gatherer bands and helped the prey to actually have the element of surprise, helped helped all of the uh, hunters to have the element of surprise. And so um, has economics, the way it's been practiced in the modern world, become more of a superstition than anything? It seems like all of the discussions that are happening now about, uh, say, the, the debt ceiling are just completely out of line with reality. It, everyone's saying, you know, we need tax cuts to, fit, to fix everything. And anytime tax cuts get brought up, everyone just walks out. I mean, I would call current economic thought superstition, except, frankly, I think that's an insult to superstition. Superstitions, when they work, and they very often do, actually have a productive role. They do something. Like um, my notion about, I mean, the hunter, in hunter-gatherer cultures around the world, when hunters go out and hunt, they do some kind of divination. They do some kind of, some kind of fortune-telling, basically, figure out where to go. According to game theory, that's the best thing they can do because you need a random element in your strategy so the other guy can't predict it. Deer are smart enough to figure out a non-random pattern. Trust me, I've hunted them. Uh, but if you insert randomness, if you insert the unpredictable, you can surprise them. 
Now, that's a functional superstition. What we've got in the case of economics is a set of ideas that evolved around a particular very unusual set of circumstances where industrial economies were rapidly expanding due to access to this flood of cheap energy from fossil fuels and also a flood of cheap raw materials from colonialism. All of our economic ideas are structured around those realities, usually without mentioning them. Those realities have changed. We no longer live in a world where the amount of fossil fuels available every year is more than the, the, the amount in the previous year. We no longer live in a world where a small number of nations in Europe and North America dominate the rest of the world and can, can you know, decide what prices they're going to pay for raw materials. A lot of the ideas of economics, which evolved in what amounts to a very different world, are hopelessly dysfunctional today. And a lot of what's going on at the federal level, to return to your example, it's another level of superstition or of dysfunctional superstition laid over the top of the economic stuff. Here you've got the Republicans saying that, you know, we have to cut taxes, taxes are too high, okay? In the 1950s, when America was more arguably more prosperous than at any other time in its history, do you know how much the top income tax rate was in this country? No idea. Yep, 92%. 92%? 92, the richest Americans paid 92% of their income in, in the 1950s in the Eisenhower administration. Remember, Republican Eisenhower, one of the most successful conservative administrations in American history, 92% tax rates. Corporations generally pay, played a fat, paid a flat 33%. Okay. Now, we've wow. cut income tax continually since then with, with everyone saying, oh, we have to cut taxes to, raise pro, uh, pro, to you know, increase prosperity. Have you noticed that prosperity has decreased every time they've done that? There's a reason for that, and it's actually a fairly simple one. People who have more money than they need to spend invest it. And it's standard economic thought that this is a good thing, but it's not. What amounts to investments these days is speculation. They're putting money into things because they hope they're going to go up in price. That money is being taken out of the productive economy and put into what amounts to a, a gigantic Las Vegas casino, where it's not doing any good for, to anybody. Where should we be and putting our money then? Into the production of goods and services. If you take a million dollars and you and and that million dollars goes to let's say Joe Average and his five hundred neighbors you know, who are out there working guys, working people, I should say, what are they going to do with it? They're going to buy things with it, which means that money is going to go into the productive economy. It's not going to go into derivatives. It's going to go into paying the salaries of the store clerk and the factory worker and, the, you know, the miner and the farmer. This is the secret to an actual, a prosperous industrial economy. It's a thing that Henry Ford, of all people, figured out many, many years ago. If your factory workers can't afford to buy your product, neither can anyone else. There's quite a group in society that's been building steam over the last few years that has been mm -hmm. calling for the end of the Federal Reserve and a return mm -hmm. to the gold standard. And, oh, man. Uh, yeah, so what was life like before the Federal Reserve and, and when we used a gold standard in the United States? And do you think that that's a realistic solution? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you want an economy that is a constant series of booms and busts, causing economic chaos, massive bankruptcy, suffering, and poverty, it's a great way to go about it. Because that's what we had in the second half of the 19th century when there was no Federal Reserve and the U.S. was on the gold standard. And I wonder, in some ways, if 
the modern corporate capitalist system is in some ways the definition of resiliency because it's so hard to take it down. It's so absorbent to any shocks. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? The thing is, you're looking at it in, over over a very short over a very short window. It has been very effective over a period of about half a century. When the Great Depression hit, a lot, I mean, most of Europe, one way or another, went socialist. It has prospered very well during a brief window of great prosperity. We'll see what's going to happen as that window ends. My guess is that it'll be very much like what happened in, in Russia when, you know, when the, after, after the U.S. undermined and, and, and collapsed, you know, engaged in economic warfare against the Soviet Union, destroyed it. A lot of American corporate interest, American and British corporate interests, with the help of, of plutocrats on the ground in Russia, went in to try to grab all of Russia's natural resources. The standard of living in Russia dropped like a rock. The Russians responded by way of Vladimir Putin, who basically targeted the plutocrats and their allies outside the country, destroyed them by, by extra legal means, no question, but restored Russia's control over its own natural resources and in the process put the screws to the capitalist system. Right now, the countries in the world that are doing best are not those that have unbridled capitalism. The countries in the world that are doing best are those that have a mixed economy. And I think you're going to see a lot of that over the years to come. I mean, um, China is not a hotbed of unfettered capitalism. China has also the fastest growing economy in the world and is gearing up fairly obviously to replace the United States as, as the, the global hegemon over the next 20 to 50 years. Do you so, think that's sustainable, that China's growth can manage popular unrest and inflation? I think a lot of people have misunderstood what China's, what the Chinese are doing. And I think basically that the Chinese have a huge advantage here. They've been around a lot longer than the rest of us. They have cultural continuity dating back 5,000 years, which is an advantage that a society that only looks back to the last quarterly profit statement doesn't have. I'm convinced the reason they're doing this massive building of, of unnecessary real estate, the empty malls and empty cities and things like that, they're stockpiling raw materials. They're doing it in a form where it can't be easily accessed, say, by a bomb or by some other piece of, of economic or some economic gimmickry. You've got this empty city, okay, in China. What is it? It's steel. It's copper. It's there are all kinds of other raw materials in a form that's kind of difficult to to haul away. When the global economy takes its next comprehensive nosedive, and the Chinese need what do they need? They need raw materials and they need something for their labor force to do. The government can hire the labor force to demolish the cities, take the raw materials and circulate them into the economy. So the a large project to build them all up and then they, it, the same project to take them all down. Exactly. That's it keeps people employed. And it's absolutely brilliant because it means that the Chinese will have raw materials when nobody else does. I think they think we're heading toward a world war. I don't think they're wrong. And I think they're looking at the situation, you know, in, in a situation of, of world war, in a situation where the world is being convulsed by major conflict, you don't have much international trade. And countries that depend on getting raw materials from overseas, countries that depend on getting their commercial products from overseas, like the United States, are screwed. China won't be in that position. We have plenty of condominium blocks as well that could be torn down. Oh, it's true, it's true. The, the thing is, the Chinese ones are generally better made. Have you ever t have you taken a look at the crap that got thrown out during the, la the late housing boom? Most of it's cardboard. So 
so that's my guess about the Chinese. I think, are they sustainable? We'll see. My guess is they'll manage. We talk about the Chinese, and we also talk to a lot of people on this show who are telling us that what the United States is doing is wrong, what a lot of countries in this, in this uh, world are doing is wrong. Uh, the rich mm-hmm. get richer and the poor get screwed. This mm-hmm. is capitalism. This is the way capitalism works. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to incorporate all these great technological advances, all these great advances in philosophical thinking and in all these different ways that humans have advanced themselves? Is this their way to incorporate all this into human life without these huge inequalities? Is there a political system that we need to introduce or is it a well, rethinking of what political systems mean? First of all, heck of a good question. We simply don't know. Every political system in human history has produced massive inequalities. Okay? There are none that don't. The only ones that haven't done so are the ones that haven't been tried yet. Marxism is a great example. Everyone, your Marxism is going to be the classless society. Everyone's equal from each according to their ability to each according to these. All that rot. Of course, once it got in power, what happened was huge inequalities of wealth and power between the, the inner circle of apparatchiks and the, the, you know, the ordinary common people. Human beings have this habit of pursuing their own individual benefit, and those who have access to the levers of power and wealth generally do it more effectively than others. Is there a way to avoid that? I don't know. I haven't seen one yet. However, all the technology and a lot of the other stuff that you mentioned is not dependent on capitalism. It's not dependent on communism. It's not dependent on... It's dependent on fossil fuels. It exists because we've had for 300 years an unparalleled surplus of cheap energy in the world. That was the lottery ticket, the winning lottery ticket that we pulled at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We have all this stuff, all the pretty toys, all the technology, all the comforts and this kind of stuff because of that lottery ticket, and we've nearly spent all the money. Whatever is going to happen in the years to come, it's a pretty safe guess that one of the very important parts of that is that there's going to be a lot less technology, a lot less comfort, a lot, many, many fewer of these of these advantages that we had to hand when we were running off this the bubble of, of cheap fuel. And given that we now have 7 billion people on the planet that can probably support a billion over the long term, getting there is not going to be pretty. Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with John Michael Greer, author of The Wealth of Nature. I had an environmental economics class a few years ago, mm-hmm. and essentially the whole class was talking about how good externalities are and how many Aww. different ways there are to work them into the uh, economy and mm-hmm. bolster capitalism to be uh, manageable for all of the ecological problems that are present. So, so what is the problem with externalities and why are economists so insistent on them? 
for, for the benefit of our readers who haven't done economics, the, the idea of externalities is that when somebody does an action that affects the, the environment, that imposes costs on other people. You know, when, when somebody decides to, dr- to drill a fracking well three blocks away from your backyard, and they drill the well and they pump in the toxic compounds of the fracking fluid and all this kind of stuff, and your water supply gets poisoned, you then have to start buying bottled water. But the cost that his action has imposed on you. Now, one of the standard notions in environmental economics for years is to come up with some way to charge externalities to the people who actually cause them. You know, again, it's, it's, in theory, it's a good idea. The problem is in making it actually making it happen in practice has proven to be essentially impossible. So, you know, it's great in theory. That's absolutely marvelous. It just doesn't work that way. The problem is that the economics profession is trying to work within a massively outdated paradigm. Their idea, and this dates back to Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, 1776, a book that founded the modern science of economics. The idea is that all wealth comes out of human labor. There are various ways that theory can be played. You could say human labor with the additional labor from past years cycled back in the form of capital. That's justification of capitalism. You can say just human labor and the labor of the working classes alone, and then you get Marxist or what have you. But they're missing something really, really massive, which is that human labor has to have something to labor on. And the laborers also have to be able to breathe, to drink. They have to have water to drink. They have to have... You have to have a biosphere. All raw materials, all the necessities of human life, all the necessities of economic life come out of the biosphere. To make economics sane again, to make economics make sense, you have to start with the idea that the biosphere is the primary economy. And the health of the biosphere determines the health of the economy as a whole. So that instead of thinking in terms of externalities, you need to see that our economy is the externality, the real economy, the economy that matters more than anything else, is the natural world, and supporting its health is the single best way to maintain economic health. Okay, so say somebody agrees with what you're saying, and they mm-hmm. agree, and they've read all your books, and they're, and they're on board with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. How do you start building this widespread consensus group worldwide? I mean, how do you reach out to people around the world. Obviously, there's people in, in the Middle East who are, are feeling the, the crunch of this, this system bearing mm-hmm. down on them. Is, mm-hmm. is this, this crisis an opportunity for us to uh, break out of this model that we've, we've lived in for so long? Is this crisis that we see coming on the horizon an opportunity to change and get bigger and better and well, change what yeah, it means to be bet- human? Better, yes. Bigger, no. Not, not bigger. Just better. Not bigger. Not bigger. We've, got, we've got to grapple with the fact that at this point, bigger isn't better. Bigger is holding a pistol to our heads. I didn't, I didn't mean to say bigger. I'm sorry. No, I understood. But the thing, I, and I don't mean to make fun of you or anything. It's just that it's so automatic a part of our thinking. That's one of our narratives right there. Bigger and better. Is this potentially an opportunity? And I'm going to say potentially yes. It could also be the basis for a complete comprehensive screw-up or a series of screw-ups. What can people do? Well, the, and this is, this is where it gets sticky. And this is the thing I've been talking about a lot on my blog over the last year and a half or so. The key that nobody wants to deal with is that you have to change your own life first. This is what destroyed the, um, the whole climate change activism thing. Everybody wanted to save the planet, um, cut down on CO2, but not them. We had, we had Al Gore, okay, who was busy traveling from place to place in, you know, flying jets, dumping CO2 all over the atmosphere, and, and building this, this immense and horribly energy-inefficient mansion with a, with a carbon footprint the size of a medium-sized African town. 
insisting that everybody else in the world needs to cut their carbon use. And so, obviously, it went nowhere. And in fact, most people came to the conclusion that Al Gore and people like him actually didn't believe what they were saying or they'd be taking action. We have to change. We have to be willing to change our own lives first. Any successful activism begins with personal change. It begins with looking at the advantages that you're getting from the existing order and say, well, I don't care. I'm going to do without those things because it matters. The first things that have to happen, and, and not just for moral reasons, for practical reasons as well, is that people who, who are concerned about peak oil, people who are looking at a dysfunctional, ecologically destructive system, need to step back from their own participation in it. They need to use a lot less energy. They need to use a lot less natural resources. They need to limit their own footprint. And, they need, and, and not just in little ways. We're not talking about, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go to change out a few of my incandescent bulbs for, with, with complex fluorescence, and that makes me virtuous. I'm talking, about stop, I'm talking about selling your car and not buying a new one. I don't own a car, by the way. I, I've, I never have owned a car. It's not that hard. Do you have a bike? You know, no, I actually walk. I walk wow. and I use public transit. And it has never been a problem for me. Even in a rural area? I don't live in a rural area. I live in a small oh, town. Now, there are probably people who live in rural areas who are going to need some kind of transport. You go 10 miles, you know, 10 miles north if you're on the other side of the Pennsylvania border, and there's a lot of people up there who are doing very well with that in rural areas without cars, thank you. They're called Amish, and they drive very nice buggies. There are lots of options. Most Americans do not live out in the rural countryside. Most Americans live in areas that, that are supplied with public transit. Most people, Americans live in areas where they can walk to a grocery store. We can make such changes in our lives. The average European uses one-third as much energy as the average American. I've been to Europe. They don't live in caves, okay? Wait yeah. a second. They don't live in caves in Europe? They don't live in caves in Europe. No. They use only a third of the energy we do, and they don't live in caves. That's ever shocking. If Americans used energy at the same rate as Europeans... This country would have so many fewer problems, it is not funny. We're still the third largest production producer of crude oil in the world. If Americans used crude oil the way the Europeans used it, we'd be an exporter. America could join OPEC. Think of the differences. We wouldn't have billions upon billions of dollars a year you know, going overseas to, to a variety of countries. Um, and you know, I could, go on, I could go on for quite some time. The thing that has to happen to make any of this functional is that people need to be willing to make changes in their own lives, partly so that they're not obviously being hypocrites, partly because it's from the standpoint of making those changes that we can then start building from the ground up, from the grassroots up, a new ecologically sound society. That's, when, that's where it's got to happen. So you wrote quite a bit about the importance of victory gardens. Do you think you can say any few things that can convince people of the importance of going out and planting their own food? I don't need to. Every time the economy turns downhill in the United States, sales of garden supplies and plant starters and things like that go through the ceiling. Most Americans have squirreled away in their mind back from the 1970s, in some cases back from World War II, the idea that it, when things get tight, one of the most effective ways you can make things easier for yourself is get out there and plant a garden, supply your own vegetables instead of having them trucked you know, halfway across the continent to you. Let's just hit a few topics really quick, kind of like a rapid fire segment. Okay, go ahead. Thoughts on could social unrest accelerate the long descent into a faster decline? 
Or could slow it down. It's really hard to say. I don't. I don't expect the the kind of model of you know mass social unrest overthrowing everything everywhere. You know, governments can deal with that if necessary by a lot of brute violence. The words Tiananmen Square may come to mind. Go on. Rural electrification as a phenomenon. It's going to happen. The 20th century was the century of rural electrification. The 21st will be the century of rural de-electrification. Um, I would encourage anyone who lives out of the countryside to look at getting a windmill. That's how most people supplied themselves with electricity back in the day. So why aren't there more solar hot water heaters installed? Because they are rather efficient. Fashion. It's amazing how many things in, in a society are a function of what's fashionable and what's not. You get a solar hot water heater, you're basically going to have 15% of your power bill free for the rest of your life. You'd think that would attract people. Mostly, it needs to become fashionable again, and it will become fashionable again as people have to start worrying about how the heck am I going to pay the power bill. All in good time. I saw an article this week on Forbes magazine. It was one of their blog entries, oh, and it was man. saying how it's a great opportunity to short tech stocks because they're all crashing right now because of supply chain issues from Japan. Any, any mm-hmm. thoughts on that? By the time it's in Forbes, it's too late that you're being set up for a sucker <laughs> deal. No, the thing is, the people who who actually made plenty of money on tech stocks were the ones that shorted them the moment they got word about the tsunami. And they're starting to pull out of that short position, which is why they're trying to sell you on their, um, you know, on on, ta- on taking the, taking it off their hands. So, right. No, so the thing is, the financial the financial press is not there to make you money. The financial press is there to um, put you in the position of being the sucker left holding the bag. Right. So, future, uh, say the future of high tech in the immediate future. In the immediate future, in the, within the short term, almost impossible to say. It will it will whipsaw around a lot. People will pile into it. People will pile out of it. Down the road, it's toast simply because um, it is way too dependent on very long, complex supply chains, not just in Japan, all over the world. You've got to have all kinds of complex um, rare earth elements. You've got to have all kinds of stuff like this. And you have to have the incredibly expensive, complex technology to build the chips, blah, blah, blah. Down the road, that's not going to be an option. I'd say go long on vacuum tubes. You can make those at home if you have to. Will we have any sort of internet going forward? I mean, um, will the internet be with us for any, any the, sort of the time? Only, the only reason the internet can pay for itself right now is first pornography it's a very large part of it second um, advertising and third it's very convenient for a range of corporate interests as those funding sources wind down it will be impossible to pay the incredibly expensive costs that are needed to maintain this you know this gargantuan technostructure are there are alternatives um, my working guess is that most of them will evolve out of amateur radio. There, there's, there's a thing called packet radio where you can take, if you have a ham radio license, you can um, hook up your computer by way of the airwaves to other computers elsewhere. It's basically a BBS system. You're not going to play video games over it. World of Warcraft is, is, you know, well, people will be fighting for their lives in other senses, so they won't need to go on um, online to fake it. You know, there, there are things that can be done. I think it's entirely possible that a global communications net on some level can be maintained, but it'll be radio and it won't be anything like so wide a pipeline. So no more cat videos. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, so machines versus humans. The machines have already lost. Human beings have, have certain advantages, you see. We evolved in a non-technological society. We can, be, we can manufacture our replacements quite readily. Um, in fact, people are usually quite enthusiastic about that. Um, to build machines that's complex, that requires 
a great deal more sophistication. It requires raw materials. I mean, I mean um, human flesh purifies itself. It, it sorts out from falafel and you know whatever your lunch was this uh, today. It sorts out what it needs. You can't. It's hard to do that with a machine. And I could go down the list. In the future, the most effective machine for a tool, for for any typical task, is likely to be a human being with hand tools. What distinguishes the United States from a third world economy? We have the world's most expensive military. That's it. I thought you were going to say the best looking women. <laughs> that would that that is a matter of taste, and I'm not going to. That's one I'm not going to get into. So no, it's purely right now. We have the world's largest military. We've got we've got troops garrisoned in 140 countries. We've got our empire and this kind of stuff, which is failing. But I mean, everything else. We import most of our manufactured goods. We export mostly raw materials. That's third world country standard. Um, our public health is down the toilet. I mean the. Our rates of infant mortality are right along, right about the same as those of Indonesia. Life expectancy at birth is dead last for industrial countries, and um, right in among the upper range of the third world. Uh, I could go on. This is a, this is a third world country. It's basically sold off all of its industrial capacity, and so now it's a third world country that hasn't woken up to the fact that it's a bankrupt and b undeveloped. We probably have a lot more cars than third world countries do as well. Um. Yeah, and and they will be sold to the Chinese for scrap. Seth, you were referring to Jersey Shore there on the attractive women, right? Yes, of course. Now, what would Jersey Shore be? I remember I haven't had a television. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the point of the book and the keynote that I want to reach, that that I want to get across to people, is that we can't think about our lives as separate from nature. We cannot think about our economic lives separate from nature. Nature is not something we can own. It's a community to which we belong, not a commodity that we can own. And if we want prosperous lives in any sense, the place we need to start by building that prosperity is to build a healthy biosphere. That's what ma- that, that's ultimately the core of what, what matters. And all the, whatever effort we can put into doing that is going to pay off massively over the, long, over the short, middle, and long term. So I think that's kind of a a basic summary and if it's not a paragraph in there well it should be it was wonderful speaking to you today I had a great time anything else that you want to hit on before we close out I think you've hit a lot of good points today the basic mercenary note that my books are available um, at your favorite full service bookstore or online in the usual places and um, my, my forthcoming one um, Apocalypse Not A History of the End of Time will be out in September I think and it should be a hoot we will, of course, link to all these on our uh, show notes of this podcast. Does, do you have a website that you want to plug before we get out? Um, probably the, the website would be the Archdruid Report, which is um, HTTP colon slash slash the Archdruid Report Thanks so much. Right. Bye. 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 That wraps up our conversation with John Michael Greer on the wealth of nature and numerous other topics. Are you recovered from the lightning round, Seth? (sighs) That was something else, Justin. I think that we should do those in every session. Hard-hitting, fast-paced. What more could you ask for from a podcast? I ask you, listeners of the Faithful Extra-Environmentalist podcast. Maybe we should start doing lightning rounds. Well, I think in the next few podcasts, we're going to be mixing up our format a little bit, making them a little bit shorter, making them a little bit faster, you know, trying to keep interest with our audience, because that's what this is all about, innovating on the fly. 
because we are Americans after all. So Seth, what were your thoughts on our conversation with John Michael Greer? It's not every day that you get to talk to the Grand Arch Druid of the ancient order of Druids in America. I mean, how often do you even hear about the Arch Druids in, in America? I know that I never hardly ever hear about them except when I'm talking to John Michael Greer or reading one of his many books. But it is interesting to have that minority viewpoint on the world politics, which is, you know, not even becoming not even a minority viewpoint anymore because so many people seem to be adopting it and bringing it into their lives and making it a part of their everyday experiences. So what do you think of John Michael Greer, Justin? Well, I really enjoyed speaking with him because he has an extremely rich and thorough uh, mindset in the sense that we could ask him about anything and he automatically pulled out a very entertaining and informative response. And that's always enjoyable to speak with someone of his caliber. But getting to the substance of everything that he had to say, he definitely made a lot of interesting points. I was kind of surprised what he said about China, that he thinks possibly they're building all of these cities so that they can be deconstructed. That was so interesting that they're building all these cities so that they could give the Chinese people jobs later. That was yeah. very interesting. I had never even thought about that. Yeah, I never considered that. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the role of superstition in our own lives, what that seems like. And you see that superstition debate played out even today as the U.S. debates its debt ceiling. And you have one side that's saying, who would raise taxes on job creators, on all of the people who make above a certain amount in the tax bracket? And then you have another side that's saying, we have to increase revenue to the government to even pay for any of the things that we're doing. And it's like this ideological divide where there's this superstition around two different sides. and. One side is absolutely caught in a religious belief when it comes to anything involving the three letters used in conjunction of T, A, and X. And if you just say the word tax, they immediately go in one direction on that. I thought it was also an interesting point that he brought up when he talked um, about the bubbles that our politicians live in and then how they're surrounded by people who just feed them information that they want to hear. So in fact, they're not really getting a very clear picture of what's going on in the world at all. They're getting a very one-sided, what they want to hear kind of view, which doesn't really help Joe Citizen, you know, Joe Plummer. Joe the Plummer. Who's just trying to make it on his, you know, $40,000 a year. Or Joe Sixpack, who only makes $30,000 a year. Yeah, or Joe Forty, who makes about 20000 a year. There's a lot of Joes. Actually, I, I wonder how well Joe the Plumber has done economically since the last election. If he's anything like a lot of the inhabitants of America, he's probably Joe the unemployment check now. Yeah, and he's probably lost his house and he's divorced from his wife. But um, I wonder if we'll get an update this year from Obama when he runs just to see how Joe the Plumber is doing, you know, just to see how Joe is making it, making it along. Well, it completely depends on who the Republican nominee for president is. Oh, you know, I got a call today from an Obama supporter who asked me if I was planning to support Obama this year in 2012. Really? And what did you say? Did you say that, silly girl, the Mayans told you that the world is ending in 2012? The person kind of was like, oh, thanks for 
talking to me and then hung up. That should be the response whenever you get a call from a pollster, is just remind them of where they are in the Mayan calendar. I should just ask them how Joe the plumber's doing. So we got some feedback on recent episodes. If you paid close attention, you'd notice that on July the 1st, we uploaded the wrong audio file for episode 17, or interview with Richard Duthwaite. That audio file showed you how much work goes into this podcast. Seth edits out everything to make sure that you have a smooth, slick listening experience. We make our guests sound like superstars. Seth puts in a lot of work on making sure that these interviews flow like smooth scotch down Joe Liquor Bottle's mouth, so throat. One of the people who downloaded our initial release of episode 17 was Travis Nobles, and he wrote in to say that he was listening to our behind-the-scenes version, and he had to shut it off 20 minutes in because the guest had a lot of interesting things to say, but his speaking style made it rather hard to listen, but he said that he noticed our expert sound editing right off the bat, and the updated version was extremely pleasant to listen to, and he knew right then how much editing goes into our conversations and he didn't even notice the cuts at all in the final edited version so he realizes how much time something like that consumes and he just wanted to tell us thanks thanks travis and then uh, a listener here from vancouver james Fasnet, he wrote in to say that uh, the podcast keeps him company at work uh, during the day and he told a lot of friends about it so that's really awesome and he uh, offered his assistance if we want to get some t-shirts made or something like that so you know if you're interested in t-shirts let us know maybe we'll get some together but he also said he'd even pay for the podcast because uh, it's so awesome but I would knock it maybe what we can do is do a Kickstarter campaign and buy you out from your job Seth and then you can edit full time that would be amazing yeah definitely. why don't you buy me out from my job I'll do that. I'm saving up. Yeah, so what have you been reading recently, Seth? Uh, I just finished the last book in the Hunger Games series. Mm. Uh, it's called The Mockingjay. And it's the uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic world where the capital makes all the districts send two tributes to the capital to fight in these games where they kill each other to the death. And it's to help remind the districts that there was a war where they rebelled against the capital and the capital crushed them. So now they're paying tribute with the, their young people's lives. And eventually the people get kind of fed up with sacrificing their young people. So they uh, rebel. And that's what happened in this book. Yeah. What have you been reading, Justin? I've been reading through Sacred Economics, the latest book from Charles Eisenstein about oh. money and gift in society and it's essentially about a lot of the backstory behind our economics and what it really says about us and provides some really interesting alternatives. Mm -hmm. I've also been reading The End of Growth by Richard Heinberg, which covers a lot on the what it means to live in an age where growth is ending. But one of the most fascinating things I'm reading right now is a book by the economist John Kenneth Galbraith short history of financial euphoria which is about all of the bubbles throughout history really fascinating story how one guy in france told everyone that he could bail out the national debt of france by digging for gold in louisiana 
And so he had everyone convinced that he was sending tons of people over to dig for gold in Louisiana. And there was so much craziness going on that women were even selling their bodies to him just to get shares in this company. People started to figure out that he actually wasn't sending people to dig gold in Louisiana. And so he even paid people to dress up and march through the streets in minor gear and get on a boat. And the boat just kind of sailed back. It didn't go to Louisiana. Yeah. They were running scams even back then, huh? Yeah, so eventually everyone figured out, jumped ship, and the whole thing crashed. Of course, that wasn't as bad as the tulip mania bubble back in the early 1600s. At least we obsess and go crazy about money. The Dutch went crazy back in the early 1600s over tulips. Over a flower. Yeah, over a flower. The tulip was introduced and people started uh, selling them and trading them like crazy and essentially it boosted the price of all their houses and everything and they were freaking out and they started exporting tulips to other countries and there was short selling going on just like in the market today and then it all fell out for some unexplained reason. I guess some guy was like, why did you pay that much for tulip? And the other guy was like, I have no idea. You're right. Why did I pay so much? <laughs> and then that whole idea just spread around and then tulips lost all their value and the Dutch economy collapsed. I'm glad that you read such heavy investigative nonfiction while I stick to the fiction. I just finished before that Hunger Games, I read the Ender's Game series, a really fun series about time and space and what it means to be human and the soul and technological advancement through artificial intelligence and interstellar beings who can travel with a blink of an eye and be in touch with multiple humans across millions of light years. And then I'm also watching Nurse Jackie, which is a TV drama on Showtime. And I'm also watching Breaking Bad, which is another TV drama. Four seasons of Whoa, that. how do you have time for all of that? I don't know. I a podcast. I will say that I did run 11 miles on Saturday for some crazy reason, which I don't really quite understand, except that I'm deciding to increase my miles because I don't know. And that was pretty fun. And if you've never run 11 miles and then changed into some dry clothes and gone to eat breakfast, then you are missing out on life, sir. Absolutely. And on that note, I think we should tell people that they can get into contact with us by visiting our website at www extraenvironmentalist.com they can visit our Facebook page and they can visit our Twitter page which we update rather frequently even when we're not putting out episodes we put out some interesting tweets so people should come check those out and if you're still listening you can still get in touch with us by our voicemail yeah it's plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two and we do love the voicemails and if you send us a voicemail I'll send you a special secret mixtape that only voicemail people get from here on out. And I can tell you, people, that that is something that is super amazing. And maybe in the future, we'll offer t-shirts for our most loyal listeners who are loyal to us. Yeah. Or maybe in the future, we'll have all of our brains connected through the galaxy into the actual fabric of the universe. The end of privacy. The rise of the interconnected human. What do you want to bet that our Skype is being hacked right now by Rupert Murdoch? Do you think the government has a has a line on our conversation? I think Rupert Murdoch probably does. To Rupert Murdoch and all of his lackeys out there listening to The Extra Environmentalist, we thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Oh, and before we go, we'll play a quick excerpt from our upcoming interview. 
So enjoy. First step in the advice is you have to figure out what's going on. Got to figure out what the game is. Everybody who's older than you, all the people who are invested in the system, everybody who's a boomer or older, all of the people who hold the reins of power currently are 100% invested in preserving the status quo. Well, if the status quo is unsustainable, their attention, you know, what they're doing is trying to sustain the unsustainable. It's a broken model. A lot of people your age have figured that out, have peered into it and said, you know, mm, not really interested in that model. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, so not really going to engage in it. And, and I, I totally get that. At the same time, understanding why it's unsustainable, why, really understanding why the model that, that is so desperately being clung to by the, the generations that have come before you, well, it, it, why that's unsustainable is, is job one. So get that understanding. And, and the crash course hopefully does that. It's done that for a lot of people, but there are other teachers and ways to come to that same set of conclusions. But it's a, it's a hard one, really, ultimately, to really fully internalize the idea that the way we are currently living will not persist. Do you want to hear a joke? Yeah, I want to hear a joke. All right, a lady walks into a library, and she goes up to the librarian at the desk, and she says, hey, I'd like to order a cheeseburger. And the librarian says, excuse me, this is a library. And the lady leans in and says, hey, I'd like 